0: It is a delight to be here with you, to be spending some time in the word of of his grace. And I'm just hopeful that the few minutes that we have together to do this will be helpful to you. Remember that we are a hearing people. So God speaks, we hear, and we respond. And so his words have been read. My call now is to stand before you and to try and be helpful in walking you through this text of scripture and helping it to change who you are And who you are becoming. Uh, I give you greetings from Boston. Everybody there wishes they could be down here with you. These are some nice new digs that you have. Wow. (laughs) I am impressed. We took a space and went from pink to this. So we did a little more work than you did. Uh, But this is beautiful. And I'm really glad that our Father, in His grace, is, is knitting your souls together. I can just feel that. And I pray that His grace continues to be on On you here. I also know that you've been preaching through the praxis of prayer. And so I'm just going to try and be one small, helpful voice for you with this text to add to the work that Ajay and others are doing with you in this season. And you heard at the end of this the word prayer come up. So be thinking with me how can God, in His grace, by His Spirit, be shaping again the understanding of how it looks for Seven Mile Road, Philly, to be a people of prayer? Okay, very helpful text of Scripture today. If you did not know it, one of the ways that Scripture casts this Christian life that you have been brought into is as an ongoing series of knockdown, down drag-out, bloody-knuckled fights. So God, in His grace, redeems us. He moves us to repentance and faith. As He does this, He brings us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son, and everything changes for us. Spiritually, positionally, we step into Christ. We are seated in heavenly places with Him, adopted into the family of God. Our eternal life and our eternal joy are secured when we believe the gospel. All of that is done, finished, Accomplished, And yet, God does not immediately remove us from the fray of this life right here. Instead, He leaves us here for a lifetime. And He calls us to bring the realities of His gospel to bear in the fray of this life. To pursue obedience and holiness and mission together... <laughs> while still living as very fallen people in a very fallen world. And what does that mean? A lot of tension, a lot of struggle, a lot of fights. Very helpfully, Scripture casts us three different fronts that these fights come to us on. The first is with the flesh right here, right? We are justified, yes, but we are still in the process of being sanctified. And that right there is a fight. These devious and sneaky and proud and lustful and idolatrous hearts of ours long to bring us back into slavery to sin. There's a perpetual fight with the flesh. There's also a perpetual fight with the world when God in his grace opens your eyes to see. You finally see the world for the fraud that it is, finally that the world and its desires are passing away. And the one who does the will of God abides, lives forever. And yet the world is still a great allure for us and its whispers get very loud in our ears and we find ourselves tempted to love the world and the things of the world. And we have to fight constantly against that temptation. And then third... And most mysterious and hardest to grasp and worn on the sleeve in the life of Christ and in our text is the fight that we, as the people of God, are in with the enemy of God. Every saint, every church that repents of their sin and places their trust in Jesus and begins to pursue his glory in all that they are and all that they do is immediately thrust into an ongoing spiritual battle with God's enemy. Now, I won't give you the 100 Bible verses on that, and I can't draw you a nice diagram, although this is begging for a whiteboard to be used on it right up here. But it's true, all of the God-honoring, Christ-exalting work that you are about as a church and as individual saints will be opposed by God your spiritual enemy. That's a reality. Now, all of these three realities beg this question that we're going to address together today. If it is a given that at any moment of your day, at any season in planting this church together, you could step into a a difficult spiritual fight in which the flesh or the world or the devil are opposing you, how do we fight well As individuals and how as a church do we really participate in the promise of Jesus that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church and her work of the gospel where do we go to get all the power for that okay in his grace what our Lord Jesus does for us in the text that we've read today is very plainly teaches us where we get infused with power that we desperately need to fight well. And that place is time spent with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That place of power is prayer. Okay, hear the text with me again. I'm just going to give you the last two verses because this is where we're going to be anchored together. I'll rego the story with you but it ends here. And when Jesus had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, "Why couldn't we cast it out?" And he said to them, "This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer." Let's pray together one more time. Father, make us a people who love your word and let us see that it is living and active And sharp and helpful. Teach us something today that we may go and live really full and abundant lives in you and the power of your spirit. Your words, make them come clear today, I pray. Come and do it. Amen. Okay, let's set the stage of the text. You have Jesus and Peter, James, and John, that little inner circle. They've been up on this mountain where Jesus was transfigured and a little peak of his glory was given to them. And they are now coming down from that mountain and they are joining the rest of the disciples. As they get down there, they are welcomed by absolute chaos. There's a huge fight going on and you have the scribes on one side and the disciples on the other and there's this crowd around them. This is like a fist fight at PS30 in Staten Island where I grew up. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody's looking at the middle like, who's going to throw the first punch? What's happening here? And uh, Jesus steps into that and everybody freezes. It's Jesus. And he asks a simple question. What are you arguing about with them? And all of a sudden this raucous crowd gets wicked quiet. You could hear a pin drop, crickets. No one wants to give an answer, especially his disciples. Because they're pretty embarrassed about why there's a fight going on right here. No one says anything. Finally, a man from the crowd steps up. It's a father. And he says, Jesus, I I can tell you what the cause of this argument was. My son is in desperate need of freedom from a spirit that is just dominating him. And I heard about this gospel that you have been declaring. And some people told me about the way that you are walking in power and setting people free. I need You, to do that for my son. And so I came to find you. You weren't here. You were up on the mountain. So I brought my son to your disciples. Verse 18, I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. Okay, were you surprised when, what's his name? When Keith read that? Probably not. We've been living in the Gospel of Mark up in Boston for about a year. That's supposed to be a very surprising verse when you read that in Scripture. You should have been like, what? That is unexpected. Several chapters before this, there was a scene where Jesus infused his apostles with power. The text said that he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And then at the end of that little story, it says, and they cast out many unclean spirits. So as you're reading that earlier, you go, okay, I got it. Jesus has called them to this gospel power freedom work. They have been given the authority to do this gospel power freedom work. They have done this gospel power freedom work before. You would expect that in this story, they would be able to do it again. But that's not what happens, is it? They are powerless to bring gospel freedom to this young boy. They step into this fight where this devil has a hold, a stronghold on this life and is refusing to let go and they falter. And in the story, Jesus is very grieved by this whole thing Because they should have been able to help this boy. They should have been walking in power. He says, bring the child to me. He asks the dad a few questions. He looks at the boy. He says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him. Never enter him again. Done. Power. The boy is set free. Then everybody goes home. And later on at night, it's just Jesus and the disciples at dinner. You seen that new Doritos taco that they're selling? It's a table of those right there. (laughs) And finally, when nobody's looking, nobody's around, no crowds, it's just Jesus and the disciples, finally someone, maybe Peter, somebody gets up the courage and says to Jesus, Hey, do you remember that dad and that boy and that devil from earlier today? How did you do that? And why couldn't we? And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we cast it out? Okay, now as you guys begin to love your Bibles here, read your Bibles, remember that we want you to be entering these stories and asking questions of these stories. So as I'm reading this, I hear that question, why couldn't we cast it out? And I go, ooh, ooh, what what is Jesus' answer going to be here? This is interesting. Now, for me, the very first answer that always comes to mind is technique. So I'm one of those ESTJ, type A wired kind of people. Do you know what that is? I did a personality profile, and they told me I was a learner, maximizer, analyst, disciplined, focused person. That means I'm miserable to be friends with or to be married to. It's terrible. But I can get some things done. And so technique is the first place that I want to roll to. I'm expecting Jesus' answer is going to be technique. You guys did not say it the right way. You didn't respond in the right way. You didn't stand the right way. Your pause wasn't where it was supposed to be. This was probably what the argument was about because the scribes loved to argue about the details and the techniques of things like exorcisms. And you're doing it wrong if you would have done it like this said it like that, or approached it like this, then you would have won the battle. Would not have surprised me if Jesus would have given an answer like that. But you notice that's not his answer. He doesn't address technique. It's never the answer when the gospel is central in the life of a people. It's not about how you do it. The second answer that would not have surprised me would have been something like this. That Jesus was able to cast this intense evil spirit out And they weren't because he's Jesus and they're not. And Jesus is God and so this situation right here took some big guns and and they had to wait for Jesus to come down to exercise this kind of a power. Very, very important for us to see that that is not the answer that we are given by Jesus in this text. The reason that Jesus was able to do this gospel work and to win this fight and the disciples weren't was not because he was God and they weren't. The doctrine of the incarnation. Ooh, this is big. Of God the Son who has existed infinitely and eternally stepping into space and time with us taking on flesh as Jesus of Nazareth to redeem God's creation. This is a deep and a glorious and a mysterious doctrine of Scripture. And there is a sense in which Jesus did not cease to be God when he became man. But there is also a sense in which Jesus did empty himself of some of his divine privileges when he became man. Now we could talk about that for hours. Theologians who use big words have talked about this for thousands of years. I could drop some big words on you today if you would like, like hypostatic union. We could do that, but instead we could do this. We could just see it in the story of the text, right? So doctrine always is enfleshed in story. Did you notice that twice in this text, Jesus had to ask questions to gather information that he didn't have immediate access to. Did you notice that? So he comes down off the mountain and he asks, what are you guys arguing about? What's the implication that Jesus would ask that kind of a question? That he didn't know what they were arguing about. And then he asks the father, tell me how long your son has been like this. What's the implication when Jesus has to ask that question of the Father? That He didn't know the details about this boy. That in some real sense, He has emptied Himself of some of His divine privilege, in this case, omniscience, that God, as God, knows all things at all times. When He stepped into flesh in the Incarnation. So if you love your Bible, you know this is not a surprise to you. We see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus got hungry, Jesus got thirsty, Jesus got tired, Jesus got surprised. Don't you love those stories? Someone says something of great faith and he goes, Oh, whoa, you took that was great faith. I didn't see that coming. Jesus gets frustrated with his disciples throughout the Gospel of Mark the whole time. Oh, what is wrong with you guys? I can't believe you answered me that way. Jesus does not always know what's coming as Jesus, the man in the incarnation. And that means that we can't just cop out here and say that Jesus' power in these stories comes from his divinity per se. Jesus did not pull out his driver's license as a God trump card and say, I can do these super powerful things because of who I am, not you because of who you are that this is the case becomes beautifully evident when we do hear the answer that Jesus does give. Jesus, why were you able to cast out that spirit, to do that work, to win that fight, but we were not able? Jesus' answer was not because I used the right technique. Jesus' answer was not because I am God and you are not. What was Jesus' answer? His answer was, because I have been praying and you have not. This kind can only be driven out by prayer. Okay, what was Jesus getting at here? Let me start with what he didn't, couldn't have meant by prayer in this story. Clearly, Jesus doesn't mean that what they were supposed to do was to take the dad's request, realize that they were in a fight with the evil spirit, and then take some time to go and pray about it, and then come back and exercise power over the demon. So this was not like Clark Kent and Superman. You know how that deal right, works right there? Clark Kent is just doing his work, and he's in his business suit, and then news comes to him that there's a fight to be fought, there's an enemy to be battled, And how does he get his power? He calls time out. He goes into a phone booth. And then he steps out in power, right? He's in his pajamas with the red cape and the yellow S on the front. He is one way. He needs to go somewhere in the moment. And now he steps out in great power. That is not how these gospel fights are fought. You don't get to go call a time out and then go get in a little huddle and pray somewhere. These fights come upon you and you need to carry power into the fight. And that's where Jesus was. He was coming down off of the mountain, not knowing anything about this dad or this boy or this devil until he was in the middle of the fight and the punch was thrown. He did not need to call time out and say, I need to go pray if this demon is going to come out Jesus was ready. And so whatever this prayer is that he is referring to, whatever this praying is, it was going on long before the actual fight. This prayer that Jesus is referencing here and calling us to is something deeper and prior and before and beneath the actual fight fight. Okay, when we were preaching through Mark 1, we blew through this beautiful verse that comes at the very beginning of the gospel, and the folks at the church who were paying attention were like, hey, how could you skip that verse right there? That thing was beautiful, and we said, all right, just be patient. We're holding on to that for when we come to this text today. I'll back up and tell you what I'm talking about there. At Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks and the Spirit descends, and Jesus is empowered for ministry. It's like he just came out of a phone booth. And from there, in Mark chapter 1, we see him exercising demons, teaching with authority, healing the sick. We called it Jesus doing work. He was going to work. But then just after he burst onto the scene, there's this fascinating one verse of Scripture. Here's what it says. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And there Jesus prayed. Whoa. Okay, I need you to feel this with me this morning to feel Jesus' rhythm. The disciples were embracing a rhythm of one time spirit empowerment, Jesus gave us authority. So we'll just do work, 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 work. Jesus' rhythm was different. There was one time spirit empowerment. Then there was amazing gospel work. And then what? Prayer. Time with the Father. And then there was great gospel work. And then what? Prayer. And time with the Father. So I need us to see the difference of these rhythms. It was not... Power, work, 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 work. Jesus had a different rhythm, infused with power, gospel work, time with the Father and the Spirit. Gospel work, time with the Father and the Spirit. And in this text, Jesus is bringing this hidden life of prayer to the forefront. And he says, you guys, the reason that I had no problem." winning this fight, dealing with this devil is because I have been with the Father and the Spirit. Okay, we're going to have to use our sanctified imaginations a little bit to get this truth down into our souls together. Last month, two months ago, I was down in Orlando. Uh, It was a training event and some of your pastor track guys were down there with us. We had a ball together. When we ate, it was like this. The Boston guys were wicked loud, and the Philly guys were nice and quiet. Except for my man, Dennis, who snuck over to our side of the table and was like, let's make some noise in here. Uh, we had a great time down there, and, and I know I was supposed to be enjoying myself in, in Orlando in the sunshine, but I was also doing what only I would do, and I was also reading a book called The Deep Things of God. Uh, it's basically a, a book, extended meditation on the doctrine of God as Trinity. Here's the basic idea, that before there was anything, before there was you or me or Philly, before there was earth, wind, fire, the elements, the band, all of them, any of it, there was God. And this God was not a solitary, lonely, monadic, singular being who was kind of biding his time by himself until the day that he chose to create and finally now had an other to be in relationship with. This is not who God is. That God was a Trinitarian being from the beginning. One God eternally existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And they lived together in this infinitely beautiful, glorious, joyful, glad, loving, raucous, fun, brilliant relationship of mutual indwelling love, each for the other. The second chapter of this book was called In the Happy Land of the Trinity. And and the author just did this masterful job of capturing the testimony of Scripture on the wonders of the triune life of God. The shared delight that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Spirit and the Spirit has for the Father and the Son and the Son has for the Father. And that there is this life and this energy and this love and this beauty and this joy In who God is. And what Jesus does in the incarnation is that he steps out of that reality into flesh to redeem us. But while he is here as Jesus of Nazareth, he does not abandon that relationship with the Father and the Spirit. When Jesus would wake up early. And go to a desolate place. You know that he wasn't going there to be alone, right? To do some kind of yoga. To tap his inner being or the divinity in the universe somewhere. Jesus was not going there to be alone. What was Jesus going to do when he disappeared at four in the morning? To be by himself? He was going to be with his father He was going to be with the Spirit. He was hanging out all over again in the happy land of the Trinity. This is what prayer was for Jesus. It wasn't a religious check-in. It wasn't a habit that he had to keep up. It was a relational time. It was a time for him to pour out his soul as we will see him do in the garden and do on the cross He was doing this in the desolate place. And not only to pour out his soul, but what? What? To fill up his soul. And in this text, Jesus is telling us that there is something about that kind of prayer. Time spent with the Father and the Spirit that so shapes you and so fills you and so encourages you, and so corrects you, and so energizes your will, and clarifies your mind, and orients your soul, and infuses you with power, that you come out of that time ready for any fight that might come your way. You come out equipped to do the gospel work that you have been called to do. In other words, for Jesus... Time spent with the Father and the Spirit was like his phone booth. He didn't need to call a time out in the moment. As a rhythm of his life, he was being empowered in prayer. The reason I was able to defeat this devil and you were not, I have been with the Father. I have been with the Spirit. And there is power to be found right there. Okay, let me give you a human analogy that that I hope will be helpful to you. Have you ever had a person in your life who is just so awesome and so deep and so wise and so helpful and so for you? You know that kind of a person? That whenever you spend some time with them, anything, a cup of coffee, playing basketball, weeping on their couch, just hanging out with them, It's like you were just in Superman's phone booth. You know what I'm talking about? You just come out of that ready, like, bring the world on, man. I've been with Joe. He loves me. He's for me. He teaches me. He shapes me. He's deep and wise. Wow. Time with him has readied me to be who I'm called to be. You know that feeling? The way that certain relationships help you with your work. Those earthly relationships, are a grace from God and they are just a little hint a little shadow a little pointer of what it's supposed to be like for you to walk in prayer with the living God if you take those moments and those encouraging conversations and relationships and you ec- increase them to the biggest exponent that you can come up with that's just a, a sniff a taste of what prayer can be like for us. We have been loved by, redeemed by, befriended by, adopted by the one who is infinitely wise and infinitely deep and infinitely helpful and infinitely for us. Imagine how much power is there to be infused in your soul if you would make it a rhythm of your life to have time with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That was the source of Jesus of Nazareth's demon-defeating, sermon-preaching, disciple-loving, forgiving, correcting, taking hold of the mission God had called him to, power and the disciples missed it. They were leaning on something that happened in the past. They were not regularly spending time with the Father, and so they had no power in the fight. Okay, that's the best I can do at teaching you that passage of Scripture. Let me just move to simple application with you. I want to be really careful here. I think the only other time that I have ever heard anybody preach from this text because we kind of stay away from these exorcisms if possible, right? It was done in a way that just kind of left me flat and depressed. The big idea was presented like this. The reason that you are not walking in Holy Ghost, fire, and power, like me, the preacher, and Jesus, the two of us, (laughs) is that you don't pray enough. And if you just prayed more, like me and Jesus then things would be going better for you, so go pray more, you loser. (laughs) I don't think loser was actually used, but that's the way that I heard it. And I was just like, I come to this text hoping for some help to walk away from this feeling empowered, and instead I walked away with my head down, dragging my feet like I am a loser, and I guess i got to go try and, and figure out how to be a better prayer all over again. This is not what I'm shooting for with you guys today, please, brothers and sisters. Here's what I'm shooting for with you that you would walk out of here with a vision of prayer, not as a religious task that you have to go accomplish better, but as a relational reality you are invited into, in which you're spending time with the Father and the Son. And the spirit hanging out in the happy land of the Trinity will have this beautiful effect of infusing your soul with great power to accomplish the gospel work that Jesus has called you to do. And I know you can go find good places to apply that, right? So if you're a mom and it is a struggle for you to love your children and you just want to choke somebody and you feel totally like I have no idea what to say or how to say it, I am a mess. Find some time in the joyous and happy land of the Trinity where their love has overflowed the banks of the three of them into you. Spend some time with the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the Word open being applied to you. And you will find power to love when you thought you would lose that fight and you would would be angry. To care when you just want to turn your heart off. See, wherever you are at, time with the Father gives you power to walk in the work that he has called you to do. Let me give you one example of how this happened with me last year, and then I'll let you go make application for yourselves. So envy is a giant issue in the heart of any church planter, and it's a wicked big issue in the heart of a church planter who's in the Northeast, right? Right? especially when you're in a network with a bunch of guys who are not in the Northeast and people actually go to church, those kind of things. I remember reading about a guy who planted a church in Missouri, and he said for his launching service, basically he took these two sticks, and he crossed them, and boom, there was 450 people ready to go and plant this church. And I'm like, 400? In my church planting fantasies, right? Right? I look like Ben Affleck, and I've got hair like Hannah Thomas. That's my church planning Okay, good, you got it. That's my church planning fantasy, right? They don't even have 450 people in my church. My fantasies. We read updates of these guys and their Easter Sunday services, and they are baptizing more people in a day than we have in nine, ten years of doing work up there. And it all of a sudden, no time to get in the phone booth, I am in a fight and my flesh wants to envy and the way that this world counts things is swinging punches at me and the devil would love to trip me up and steal my joy by making me unhappy with what God has given me and looking at grass that's greener a little bit south of here. You feel that? Now in that moment, I don't have time to go call a timeout. I need to be walking in power. Power to remain holy and joyful and centered on the gospel. And so in that season when envy is trying to get a hold of my soul, I find some time to be with the Father because of the work of the Son through the power of the Spirit. And the Trinity visits me with this verse. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Himself to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's like a phone booth for me right there. Time with the Father, shaping me through His Word, telling me, Matt, you don't have to envy, you don't have to sin in that way, you don't have to believe the lies of the world or the voice of the devil. You can rejoice in who I am and the work that I've called you to do. I step out of that time with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and now I am able to rejoice in my brother's churches that are growing 20 times faster than mine. Rejoice as the Spirit is doing a work in me. And I am able to exercise gospel power. It's not because I knew the right words to say. It was because of time spent in this joyous, shaping, soul-forming land of the Trinity. I would love for you to see prayer as that over and over again. There is power, not in my technique, because of the person of Christ, the person of the Father and the Spirit filling me up for this work. And I would love if the story of Seven Mile Road, Philly is all the fruit that you see is birthed out of us being serious about time with the Trinity, being shaped and empowered and corrected and loved and encouraged by our Father and His Son and His Spirit. All right, let me finish there and pray for you. Father, everything in this culture drags us away from prayer. Everything in this culture tells us there's some right technique. That's how you can accomplish stuff. I pray that we would disdain all of those lies and instead would say there's no phone booth like time with the Trinity. There is no place like alone with the Father and the Son and the Spirit and being shaped by their love and their beauty and their truth and their mission. I pray that every saint in this room would begin to walk in a new kind of Holy Spirit power simply because they know what it is to pray, to have their souls being poured out and filled up with the living God and his gospel and his love. And from there, we would step out with the power to actually win these fights and plant this church and be holy people. I pray that you would come and do that and do it for your glory and for our big joy. I pray, hear my prayer and answer. Amen. Amen.